0: Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow.
1: Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Payroll Question Time. So before we jump into our first topic, let's start with our first question. Let's see how uh, awake our panel are today. The first question comes in from Harriet Beckett and it's this. We have a workplace pension scheme which no one was salary sacrificing into. I asked the pension provider if we can start offering salary sacrifice. And they said, yes, it seems too easy. Are there any compliance concerns
2: I should be aware of? Um, well, I'll start and we'll chip in. I'm sure John may have a view on salary sacrifice agreements. Yeah, the scheme, in effect, a, a salary sacrifice scheme is an employer only contribution to the pension scheme so in effect the pension scheme is saying yes you can make employer only contributions obviously you need to consider um, normal employee contributions for those who can't salary sacrifice I don't wish to salary sacrifice but you need a contractual arrangement in place between the individual and the employer to say yes the individual has to agree that I'm happy to sacrifice part of my pay in exchange for an employer contribution to the pension scheme so it's not just the pension scheme agreeing to this. You also need the individuals who to whom you're going to do the salary sacrifice. So that's a simple overview. I'll hand it for, to the rest of the panel for any additional bits you'd like to add before we get to the. I know we're talking about maternity later on, so probably pick yeah. up that. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. If I jump in there, I think there are there are some themes that you'll find throughout that relate to your question. And rather than recover them, uh, let's see if we touch base, if not further ask, because there are implications for SMP, uh, there are and other uh, state benefits, uh, potentials, uh, national insurance contributions, there's all sorts of impacts. And we're going to cover other areas also in relation to national minimum wage. Uh, so there's quite a lot overarching here that are all linked, isn't it? The challenge sometimes with government is they treat all these things as separate but they actually touch each other. So they're all like a big uh, circle holding hands. Uh, So interesting times. The contractual part is critical. You are making a contractual change. And quite often there's misunderstandings in the operation of salary sacrifice of what they really mean. So quite often people still think the employee is making a pension contribution. The employee is not making any contribution what they're agreeing to is to take a pay cut so they're earning less and the employer is making a contribution and that has legal obligations or, uh, further downstream. I think that's sort of a over to you John to see if you had any uh, uh, thoughts on sacrifice arrangements and contract law maybe.
0: Well you're right it's, it's a contractual change and I mean just to preface this um, uh, with the uh, One of the disadvantages of of being a lawyer is you always have a habit of being able to suck the joy out of any room that that you enter. Um, But it is important to get these things properly documented because it is, as you say, an important contractual change. So it has to be clearly set out. And uh, and as I say, I I, I can't write a a Christmas card without there being several disclaimers in it. And uh, if you ask any lawyer, the first thing that they're going to ask you to do is, is just demonstrate that if there's a contractual change, that there is a written agreement that evidences that. So it's important from a legal perspective that these things aren't done on the fly uh, and the agreements are carefully considered uh, and you get the employee agreement to it.
1: Excellent. Well, great start. First question. All three panel members involved, we'd like to see. We've also already had three additional questions coming. I'm going to save the other three for the moment because they're relevant for the next section of the webinar. So let's jump in then to our first subject, the health and social care levy. What indeed are the implications? Uh, Over to you, Simon.
3: Uh, There are a number, and I think this is, uh, if we keep this picture of uh, lots of people in a circle holding hands, in some ways we could think, oh, this is just a 1.25%. What does 1.25% mean? Well, if your current contribution rate is 12, that's over a 10% increase in national insurance contributions from an employee. So that's one of the starts of the implications. But that then filters on to other things. So it affects class 1A contributions. So any benefits in kind, uh, there's an extra 1.25 percentage point rise. And it affects both employee and employer. So the employer is actually paying an extra 1.25% as well. So that's 2.5 altogether. So it goes on and on. Uh, So in that respect, there is an increase in costs facing both employees and employers from the 6th of April. I have to see if there's any political pressures that change anything. There were some hints some weeks back that it may disappear, but uh, Rishi and uh, Boris came out and said it was staying. So we've got the health and social care levy. (laughs) The other aspect is uh, what does that mean elsewhere? So payslip message, are saying pretty, pretty, please, would you put a PACIP message on for this year only because we've incorporated this new health and social care levy into the national insurance contribution rates. But next year, we're going to take it out and do it separately. So they're asking for a message to be put out. Uh, it's not mandatory. There is some disagreement on whether that should be applied or not amongst the industry if we talk around. And for those that want to get political, because... The health and social care levy pays an amount to England, not necessarily Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. Although it may be used by those devolved governments for that purpose, but they don't have to. It's up to them, although some may be announcing. So is the message applicable across the UK? But so there's that type of argument or discussion that goes on. Plus, there is actually no basis in law for the message at all. So it is a pretty please Uh, would you consider issuing this message for a year? And then there's an implication for salary sacrifice because it's an extra uh, 1.25%. The uh, tech scheme or whatever other schemes I'm operating or get involved in getting a bike seem a little bit more attractive than the the 2% saving if you're a high earner because it's now 3.25%. Or for a low earner, 12% is now 13.25%. So there are an element of will it actually push people to do more sacrifice because it saves the employer and the employee money. So that's my bit for the moment. I don't know if we want to go elsewhere, Nick, on uh, health and social care. There is a
1: question. Will the government pull it?
3: Yeah, will they? Um, The indication at the moment is no. But however... Uh, maybe there is uh, a little bit of political unpopularity, so uh, will they come up with something else instead? And well, I don't know. Is uh, so it may be a wait and see, but there is a spring statement, isn't there, due in March?
1: Interestingly, Interesting uh, Emma's uh, commented here in the, in the in the question box It says that uh, two providers, uh, BrightPay and MoneySoft, have confirmed the payslip message will be built in. It won't be an option so do we think that most providers will follow follow suit i think you'll get a mixed bag
3: nick so uh uh it's certainly been a bun fight a little bit here on what we do because uh uh where's the nature of the business and certainly they've got that sort of welsh or scottish feeling at times of saying what's this english message got to do with us Yeah, for sure.
1: We are getting lots of questions coming in around the salary sacrifice again, which is great. Fantastic people. So please do keep those coming in. Should we move over then to the national minimum wage increases? Because there's obviously a direct impact here on salary sacrifice. And perhaps uh, before we jump into that, I'll start with some of the questions that have come in. and We'll try and field these as we go. Uh, The first one comes in from Susie, which says, can employees increase or decrease their salary sacrifice value at any time? I've I've seen uh, about not opting in and out of salary sacrifice as it can cause tax costs, but I was unsure about employees increasing their salary sacrifice pension or reducing it.
3: This falls under something called the Heaton versus Bell principle, uh, Nick. So the Heaton versus Bell principle, in effect, renders a salary sacrifice ineffective if it can be changed at will. So uh, this related to a company car scheme that went many years back when they weren't taxable, Of the fella could have a car one week and give it up and then have it back, and therefore uh, advantage from tax. And the Heaton versus Bell found that if it didn't have the sort of longevity requirement, it failed and it wasn't really a salary sacrifice at all. And actually, the earnings were due tax regardless. However, there are exemptions for the Heaton versus Bell principle, and pensions is one of them. So is childcare, so is car parking, There are a few others, but for some of them, there is this sort of longevity. Usually, that's a minimum of 12 months, but that doesn't apply to childcare or pensions. All right. So you can actually change your salary sacrifice amount every day if you really want to, and it doesn't break the Heaton versus Bell principle. What would break a salary sacrifice arrangement is what uh, John has sort of mentioned earlier, and is that... You don't really have a contractual variation in place at all so some people think well i'll just keep on changing it but actually i have no agreement that i'm taking a pay cut because uh, when the inspector calls he may actually say okay now i can see what you're doing show me that you actually have a contractual variation and if you don't you haven't got a salary sacrifice in place now what that contractual variation could be shown as, maybe um, we'll ask John to mention, because I don't think it has to be some sort of 50-page document that's signed with a ink uh, pen, does it? But uh, does that well, help a little
0: bit? On pensions, no risk. Yeah, I mean, for, from an employment law perspective, um, in terms of, of contracts, I mean, there are, there are minimum requirements that, that you have to give people written terms and conditions uh, and the such like. But there isn't a rule that you can't vary a contract um, orally if that's what you wanted to do. But, of course, it's better to have things in writing so you can evidence those changes. Uh, And it doesn't have to be, as Simon says, it doesn't have to be war and peace. It it can be relatively short, provided it does the trick. Um, So there's no great form to it. It just has to hit the minimum requirements of there being an agreed variation to a contract, uh, which is evidenced in writing just for your protection. Well, I was going to sure. say,
2: normally flexible benefit schemes, your large employer got a flexible benefit scheme, that would be a mechanism through which you can start to make those changes. Um, so that's one possibility. And I think from a payroll perspective, you probably don't want people changing contributions all the time, whereas the workload is in payroll. So there should be some sort of logical process behind that to to enable an employee to sacrifice more. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: So I've got another question here, which is, if an employee requests to join an employer workplace pension, so maybe I'll come to you for this one, Andy, to begin with, um, that is deducted via salary sacrifice, do we need to write to them and get their signed consent back before the payroll in which we start deductions? I was unsure with salary sacrifice needing to be future salary, how the notification and consent fits with the timelines for the salary sacrifice
2: to be correct. Uh, Yes, it is very simply for automatic enrollment to be true you cannot have a barrier in place. So they have to be put to, the, the legislation requires the employer to enroll them into a pension scheme. The employee mustn't have to do anything in order for that to happen. So if in order for them to join the pension scheme, they have to sign something that says, yes, I agree to salary sacrifice, then that is a barrier. So those things have to be done prior to automatic enrollment needing to occur, which could be therefore, and John will probably pick up on this, can be built into the contract of employment that you will if you join the scheme it'll be on a salary sacrifice basis or maybe you someone triggers automatic enrollment maybe from their, or you put them in from their start date um sorry you, you postpone people from their start date but during that postponement period that's when you get the individual to say yes i agree to salary sacrifice so at the end of postponement if they then get enrolled the salary sacrifice agreement is in place and it can all Go ahead,
0: and there's no barrier.
1: Super. Anything you'd like to add to that, John?
0: No, I agree entirely with that. You need to get things in place before they before they commence from a contractual point of view. Super.
1: Mm-hmm. We seem to have lost uh, Simon for a moment. I don't know if Simon's still there, but I can't see him on our on our screen. So um, perhaps if we, while we're waiting, we've got a couple of other questions coming in here, but they're probably more um, focused for for Simon for the moment. Uh, so I'll leave those for just a second. But if we open up um, here and come into the national minimum wage increases section. John, are you able to talk to us uh, a little bit more about the impact on maternity in Alabaster, or is that more focused for for Simon?
0: No, I I, I, I can cover it. I'm sure I'm sure the law of Payroll would, would cover it better than me. But uh, the essence of, of uh, Alabaster the decision it is really that where you have a pay rise uh, which occurs during maternity leave, that, then it's treated for statutory maternity pay purposes as if it's been backdated to the start of the maternity leave. Uh, And what that means in in practice is someone who's on maternity leave will effectively, uh, in a lot of cases, receive the benefit of a pay rise earlier potentially than other employees. And uh, what it also means is that if there is a pay rise, which is in the last week of maternity leave, then that will be backdated to day one. Uh, And that's the the essence of the uh, alabaster decision. Uh, And, and of course, if you've got a national minimum wage increase, uh, that will also apply uh, for those who are on national minimum wage because there will be an increase in their pay as a result of the national minimum wage increases. Uh, And as I say, the essence of alabaster is that those pay rise get backdated uh, to the start of the uh, maternity leave period. And that certainly applies to SNP. One bit which I'd probably defer to to Simon on, and I've I've never quite worked out if there's a clear answer to it, is to the extent to to which uh, those pay rises also apply to contractual paternity pay as well. So certainly for statutory, uh, with contractual, it always seems to me to be slightly of a gray area. But uh, Simon may have a view on that.
3: Yeah, and I'd go along with that because the con- depends on the wording of the contract and its basis. So it's just being very careful on contractual additions of what's included or not. So there is a potential that it could be, but if it's worded correctly, then it's because, for example, certain bonuses, et cetera, could be based on a fixed point in time of pay, but how is the wording of the occupational scheme? that be fair to say do you think john so i think it's just be careful because of uh,
0: the yes. uh, legislation's yes. impact yes. well certainly what i have seen is there have been some contractual schemes that that, that are drafted which which doesn't cover the contractual element of it uh, and I, I think in some public sector organizations that's the way that, that some of them are drafted so i think it's 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 possible uh, and you're right probably depends on the wording
1: We've had a, a question actually which relates uh, right, right to the heart of the subject from Beth, which says, What about shared parental leave? Does that impact it at all?
0: I'm not convinced that it is, actually. But, um, I think the ruling predominantly relates to maternity, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, and, and I have to say, when, when it comes to, to, to shared parental leave, it, in my experience of it, the take, of that, the take up of that is, is remarkably low. Uh, and partly because the way that the scheme is structured is insanely complicated, um, which has led to a fairly long take up of it in, in our Although experience.
1: You would, you would think, as the world is changing to be more inclusive, mm-hmm. that actually this is something that probably needs looking at if that's the case.
3: The difference is shared parental pays at a flat rate, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So, one question here, which again ties into this subject, uh, just a couple minutes, is if someone leaves and you pay the outstanding holiday pay, would you base it on their basic pay only then, or would you include any assigned allowances they may have received during that
0: period? That opens up an, a, number of, a number of questions. Um, in terms of, of uh, pay, uh, paid holiday on termination of uh, employment, clearly, clearly what you're, you're entitled to is your accrued but untaken holiday in that period of time. Uh, and the calculation of, of sort of assessing holiday is now on a 52 week look back in working out what the correct level of pay is. Uh, And there are certain elements which need to be included in that, and it's not uncomplicated in the sense that if you are looking at, for example, levels of overtime, uh, if that's sufficiently regularly carried out, that can be included in the calculation of holiday pay. So it's uh, an area where uh, on the face of it, you would assume that it's relatively simple to work out what the level of holiday pay is that should be paid out on termination of employment. In practice, it can be slightly more complicated than it initially looks.
1: Anything you'd add to that,
3: Simon? Our rewording John John's answer is, uh, in answer to the question, uh, no, you can't base it on basic pay if they've had other payments included in holiday pay. In effect, if they've worked overtime, they've had commission, they've had bonuses, et cetera, that relate to the performance of their duties, that would need to be included in a termination calculation of holiday, as if they were working, really, and and the averaging would be up to the prior Saturday to leave. uh, So the courts would say that the standard Employment Rights
1: Act calculation rules would be required. Okay, good. So we've still got more questions to run through here. So uh, the one question, what come in from uh, from Lisa Thomas, it says, we offer cycle scheme salary sacrifice. If the monthly deduction would reduce the employee below national minimum wage, we decline the request and offer to take the monthly higher cost by a net pay. We've recently been informed this practice could invalidate the cycle scheme altogether as it is not open to all and the deductions taken via net pay would be taken into account for national minimum wage calculations. Thankfully, we only have a handful of employees who have the cycle scheme deducted net. But I'm interested to find out how other companies ensure all employees are able to utilise the cycle scheme. That may be
3: more a question to the other people that are joining the grouping here, and it'd be good to explore that one out. And there are means to do that. uh, And in communities such as the one that you're running, uh, Nick, as well, that we're involved with. But uh, give some views. And that is the fact that you exclude someone because their earnings are insufficient doesn't necessarily mean they're excluded. Because if their earnings were sufficient, could they participate? And if they could, then they're not excluded. Does that sounds a bit of a riddle, doesn't it? But it's what it's in effect saying is, you're not being excluded because of who you are. You've been excluded because you don't meet another qualifying condition, which is you weren't sufficient. So I don't think that breaks the cycle to work scheme rules because it is available to all who meet those conditions. Uh, so you're not saying a certain group can't participate. You're saying because of circumstance, they can't. But that doesn't uh, uh, sort of invalidate the rule. The other aspect on deduction is uh, deduction for what? Because they're not buying a bike. Uh, so what are you deducting off their net pay for? Uh, with possibly the view of uh, an MW audit person. And they probably say that's just to save Uh, you as an employer breaching the national minimum wage. So the deduction is for the benefit of you, Mr. Employer. Therefore, it reduces pay for national minimum wage purposes anyway, so you're in breach of national minimum wage regardless. So there's more an angle of delaying or or, um, moving forward liabilities, possibly to future points, rather than taking it there and then. But these are the implications of salary sacrifice arrangements is thinking, what are the impacts of them legally? And quite often we take a view, well, it's the same piece of money we're talking about, really, isn't it? So what's the difference? And it's all in the wording, contractual arrangements and the need to meet taxation law. And they're a little bit of a fiddle. So how they're fiddling is saying an employer can loan you a bike and it's not a benefit. So it comes under no tax and no national insurance liability. If you want to buy a bike, pay it out of your pay. There's no tax relief and no NI relief. And what we've done here is combine it with an activity to say, well, I'll tell you what, if you earn a little bit less, I'll give you a bike. I'll bend you one. And on that basis, you pay a little bit less tax, a little bit less national insurance, and you get the loan of a bike, but you don't own it because it's not yours. And that's another effect what uh, Sarah sacrifice is doing is uh, fiddling the books a bit, but legitimately. So you're doing it through a, contra- uh, a legal construction that potentially works. So it's not all the same thing. So don't think the employee is buying anything because they're not. The employer owns that bike.
1: Interesting. I don't think I knew that. So that's, that's opened my mind up a little bit, Simon. We knew this was going to be a topic of, uh, of great conversation and questions, which is why we brought it into today's question time. And the questions are coming in thick and fast. But we've got another one here that does relate to uh, national minimum wage uh, and salary sacrifice, which is this comes in from Rachel Johnson. She says, Does anyone have any advice on managing membership of salary sacrifice schemes from a payroll perspective? Because We have an issue with our payroll software, whereby the system does not flag if an employee drops below minimum wage due to multiple salary sacrifice deductions. We have recently increased the range of salary sacrifice benefits we offer to our employees. So there is more risk now of this happening. And I'd be interested in advice on how best how the best way to manage this going forward.
3: It's an interesting. Why well, you want me to jump in on this, Nick? A well, I bit? think it ties into it's your system's
1: expertise here, Simon, as well as your uh, your experience on yeah. on salary sacrifice and minimum wage. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm I'm monopolising sure. your uh, your skill here.
3: Well, that's okay. Well, let's jump in on a, on a legality type side. I'll try, and that's and, that, and and then try and relate that with payroll. Is uh, and ask a question. And the question is, how would the payroll know whether national minimum wage is being paid or not? Now, uh, you could say that's a bit of a perverse response, but the reality is the payroll only knows what you tell, tell it. So it knows how much you're paying someone. It doesn't know whether you're breaching national minimum wage law because it includes so much else. I mean, have you recorded all the time they work? Have you recorded the uniform position? Have you recorded other uh, training obligations that you're not paying? So, national minimum wage is actually much wider than a payroll calculation. It's not. It's a business process, human resource application process, and may include lots of factors that the payroll actually has no idea. The other implication for salary sacrifice arrangements is that they're a contractual upfront agreement. So the agreement is being made before payroll even knows they're being paid. So how do you get a payroll solution to police that? Now, you can set boundaries and parameters that potentially flag things, but you have to build it to do that and tell it the rules that you want to administer. Does that mean it can tell you whether you're in breach of minimum wage or not? I'd actually suggest it probably won't know. It can probably think you are it doesn't know for a fact and uh if i look at recent data that i look at because i deal with minimum wage quite a lot when people come to us we actually within the sd work solution do have compliance checking capability which works real time but based on and dependent on the data provided because we do need to know how long people have worked including training including business travel including everything that needs to be counted to calculate true national minimum wage and compare that by identifying properly correct uh, flagged sacrifice schemes to see what the implication it can but what would you want the payroll to do about it is the other aspect and maybe I'm being a bit obtuse there because it doesn't know what you want to do about it because you actually have entered a contractual arrangement with your employee so there is an element of fix it uh, and And again, that can seem a bit obtuse, but that's the reality of the legal position. Now, the challenge with the national minimum wage increase is living wage has gone up 6.6%. So a whole group of people that had no problem with national minimum wage law and having a bike suddenly have had their pay statutory minimum increase so much that they've got no pay left to sacrifice. So what's the situation? Well, they're entitled to a bike and you have to pay the minimum wage uh, is the, the challenge. So there's an element of uh, going in with eyes open to understand the implication. But often when there isn't sufficient, for example, to cover a bike, what happens is the, uh, the sacrifice is extended out. But with other sacrifices, you can't. So, for example, if they're on maternity leave, you can't sacrifice statutory maternity pay. So if you say I'll hold that back and collect it later, you're potentially committing an act of sex discrimination. So there's an element of thinking what all the implications are. Now some of the other panelists may have some views as well on on that because. Uh, but ultimately, I guess I'm saying don't agree to something that's going to make you, and Mr. Employer, a criminal, because. Uh, that's the other aspect of me being uh, Friday or Tuesday, is that breach of national minimal age law is a crime. But it doesn't necessarily come under civil law. It comes under criminal law. I don't know if you've got a view there, John, or
0: if, am yeah. I really stirring the nest? No, I, well, I, 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 that, that's right. I think most of the, the, the penalties tend to be civil, but you're right, there's a criminal element to it. But I would just say that that I agree. Sometimes there's a a lack of of communication and understanding uh, between uh, the business and and payroll on these things. And uh, I've had a few queries recently and I've been looking at them and trying to uh, analyze them. Uh, And the starting question is for me is, is, well, how do you categorize the work? Because there are different rules by whether you're effectively a, a salaried hours employee or you're doing time work or unmeasured work. And, it, and I speak to people and they say, well, what type of work are people carrying out? And they say, well, I, I don't know. Uh, and unless you, you get those initial steps in place, being able to categorise the work correctly, you're inevitably going to run into some problems. Uh, so it's another matter of just making sure that there's that communication there so people understand the correct categorisation of work for national minimum wage purposes. And if you don't get that right, then you can run into some quite difficult problems.
1: Well, let, let me keep the conversation with you then for a second here, John. I've got a question I think probably relates to uh, well, a couple of questions potentially here. It comes in from Susie. But it says, with salary sacrifice needing to be open to all, in the yeah. example of the cycle scheme, which we talked about now, but it could be another scheme, can we exclude a fixed-term contract employee if they have less than 12 months on their fixed-term contract? Because we won't be able to take 12 monthly deductions. Uh,
0: I, I don't know the answer to that, Nick. I'll be, I'll be honest. yeah.
1: I would have thought that'd be a legal consideration here if they want. I don't know. Yeah, there must be. a. I imagine it's a binary response, but I don't know the response.
0: Well, it
3: depends on the wording of the agreement and what is meant by available to all, because you could put in a longevity clause within the agreement, which is available to all. It's just they don't meet the conditions for meeting the available to all. Does that make sense? It seemed, Again, it seems a bit obtuse, doesn't it? But because they can't have it because they're not there long enough doesn't mean it's avail- not available to all. Because yeah. if they did meet the conditions, it would be available to them. So don't think because certain groups are excluded for certain things, that that means it's, it doesn't mean be available for all conditions because that's more about you don't allow people for other reasons to not participate. And so I'm... I'm sound, sounding a bit obtuse, but I think we get hung up with it. Plus, there's an element of the available to all relates to cycles, doesn't relate to other stuff. You don't have to have an available to all clause for pensions yeah, or other things or childcare even, because childcare isn't available to all, because new joiners can't start since 2018. It's only available to those that were in it before. So there is no available to all clause. But the intention of the bike scheme is that everybody could join if they met the relevant conditions. And you didn't say that the OICs and Gophers can't have it, but the senior managers can. It's more, that's what it means more by available to all. But you could have the service conditions potentially there, et cetera. So, the, so it's a little bit more gray flexible than maybe we think on the available to all. Plus, you could probably do a salary sacrifice on a bell if you wanted to over nine months, because it's uh, safety equipment as well.
1: Interesting. OK. Um, I've got uh, another question coming from Emma here. It's an employment allowance question. We are just updating our year end checklist and have been discussing employment allowances. State aid law was repealed at the end of 2020 and the trade and cooperation agreement now governs subsidies and financial assistance. This has significantly higher de minimis threshold. Would this apply to EA? HMRC's website still states a 200K threshold. Has anyone come across this? Thanks.
3: Well, I, I think that's a referral to the HMRC. We talk about it being repealed, but I think we've got to understand what that means. The requirements of the employment allowance haven't changed as far as I'm aware, so you'd need HMRC to stipulate if there was anything else. The requirement to report the de minimis aid value was withdrawn from the beginning, so originally we we're going to have to report that on the EPS. There's no requirement to report the de minimis aid on the EPS. However, we are under EU-agreed requirements as part of the EU Settlement Agreement, so there are elements that continue even though you may say it's been repealed, it's uh, been matched by alternates. So that may be an element of saying I don't think it's changed because it applied to 21-22. But if HMRC come out and say it's different, let's see. But I think that the uh, de minimis rules still apply as listed by HMRC. Super.
1: Now, I'm conscious of time. So we're going to go through just a couple more questions here. It's obviously a popular subject. but I expect we're going to get quite a lot of questions when we open the next section on maternity as well. So just to finish off with these 2 i we've got one coming in here for you, Andy Nichols, which I'll finish with. But just before I get to that question, uh, the first one is this. For those with the ability to purchase extra holidays, do you include the salary reduction in your national minimum wage calculations? Um, and should holiday purchasing be available for all?
3: Well, if I answer that, I'm going to say yes and no. So, yes, anything that salary sacrifice that reduces pay is part of the NMW. So national minimum wage pay is the result after the sacrifice or any other deduction for the benefit of the employer, uh, which can include attachment of earnings order fees or uh, earnings arrestment fees. They're all considered for the benefit of the employer or purchase of goods from an employer. So all of those things can reduce NMW pay. The other aspect is does holiday salary sacrifice have to be available to all? Uh, it's not a thing, to be honest. So a holiday is just a cash arrangement. So the sacrifice availability has uh, no relevance to holiday because
1: the tax and NI liability is on the cash pay that results at the end. Super. So last question then before we move on to maternity rights. going to give this one to you, Andy, Nicola, if I may. If you operate a salary sacrifice pension scheme, once the employee exhausts their SMP, is the company still liable to pay into the employee's pension scheme, including the EE's part, the employee's part? If they, are, if they are, would that be based on the employee's normal base salary? And does this also apply when the employee is on long-term sick and has exhausted their
2: SSP? So, yes, salary sacrifice... And return to leave wonderful topic um, so first of all the um, the employer contributions are due on the level of pay they would have had had they not been on return to leave. so the employer has to work out what that is, and if they're on a regular wage that is a standard monthly amount, and that's always the same, then you could argue that's the amount that you're going to base the employer contributions on. If they're on variable pay, then you're going to need to operate some form of method of calculating, which is reasonable, to work out what a standard um, amount of pay would be that person would receive that they're not been on maternity leave, which could be um, possibly utilising the method used to calculate average weekly pay for for maternity uh, pay, or it might be Employment Rights Act, 12 weeks and all those sort of things, or maybe even how you calculate holiday pay. But you need to have an approach that you use to calculate what a standard amount of money would have been for that person had they been not been on maternity leave. Then the employer that's what the employer's contribution is based on. And the individual has said, I'm giving up part of my pay in exchange for an employer contribution. You cannot recover that amount of money that the employee has given up from SMP. It's not allowed. Now, if you've got other payments going through to that individual, which you can contractually recover the amount that the person sacrificed from, then that individual will then be contributing their salary sacrifice amount, so to speak, from those additional payments, maybe occupational maternity pay, and so on. But what what has been agreed between the employer and the employee over the salary sacrifice will determine what can, can't be recovered from additional payments on top of SMP. But SMP cannot have any salary sacrifice deducted from it. So if the the person's just getting SMP only, then during up to 39 weeks of receiving SMP, the employer needs to pay the full amount, including the sacrificed amount, so their normal employer contributions, plus the salary sacrifice amount in full, based on that person's pay that would have been paid had they not been on return to leave. Yeah.
3: The other aspect, Nick, was uh, how long for. I think you mentioned it, though, but it is well, w- for the duration of maternity pay. So if you've got a period that they go into non-maternity pay under Social Security uh, um, law, there is no requirement to continue the employer pension contribution. It relates to weeks in which they receive maternity pay.
2: Unless the scheme rules say something different. And if the scheme rules require more, Correct. then you're going to need to do more. Yeah. We move out the question.
1: Let's let's move the uh, conversation then on to maternity rights. I'm going to uh, open this up with you, uh, John Keeble, if I may. Some uh, some common areas that employers are currently falling foul of in relation to maternity rights.
0: Yeah, for, for sure. Well, I think probably the first thing to say is it's important to note that well, there are other family friendly rights as well, uh, and a whole host of them, including adoption, shared parental leave. Uh, but we could probably do an hour and a half on on those in themselves. So focusing on maternity, the first point is what protections do, do people have or what rights do they have? And uh, the first one is paid time off for uh, receiving antenatal care. Uh, that's a paid right that they have. Uh, of course, there's the, the right for SMP, 39 weeks at the 90 percent average, uh, followed by the six weeks, at uh, the statutory rate for the first six weeks and the statutory rate thereafter. There are health and safety protections um, in place for people who are pregnant. And the first one of those is is really, and the most important one, is a need to carry out a risk assessment in the workplace. Uh, There needs to be a generic risk assessment, which is in place for new or expectant mothers, and sometimes a more specific uh, risk assessment in place uh, for particular workplaces And if there are health and safety risks uh, to uh, a woman who is a new or expectant mother, then you have to take steps to mitigate those significant risks. And if you can't do that, you've got to offer alternative employment, which is suitable. And if you can't do that, then you have to place the individual on full pay by way of effectively a medical uh, suspension. There's also protection against discrimination, uh, and that's from a An employment law perspective is is really where we look at and where the claims come in. Uh, And I have to say, there are certain classes of claim that make employment lawyers more nervous than others uh, in terms of degree of risk. Uh, And anything relating to maternity uh, or pregnancy is somewhere near the top uh, of that list. In terms of the uh, benefits that people get during maternity leave, I think there's been uh, a change over the years because historically, there was some form of split between ordinary maternity leave which is the 26 weeks uh, and additional maternity leave but the differences between the two have largely been uh, eroded from a financial perspective as contractual benefits other than pay and the type of things that you're looking at there is you know mobile device health club membership uh, all of those things including the accrual of contractual annual leave must continue during ordinary maternity leave and additional maternity leave. So the distinctions between the two from that perspective uh, have largely uh, disappeared. But in in terms of benefits during maternity leave, there are some which are a a little bit tricky. Um, If you're looking, for example, at a company car, if the company car is provided for business use only, then there isn't a natural obligation to continue to provide That benefit during maternity leave. However, on the other hand, if the company car can be used for personal use, um, then that is something which the individual is entitled to still have during the maternity leave period. Now, this drifts slightly into the realms of Lord of Payroll, who may be able to to, to help on this, but a a tricky issue relates to car allowances. uh, And I'm not sure that there is a definitive answer on car allowance as to whether that continues or not during a period of maternity leave Uh, and I think there are arguments either way uh, on that. Uh, Simon you may have a view from your perspective as to what the the usual practice is for those that you're advising on that. Uh, Yeah it's one that can be open for
3: debate. The maternity rights law does not relate to any cash benefit and that's the difference but then you get into that sort of equity argument of thinking, well, the individual that took the car still got the benefit of the car. The individual that took the cash has uh, not got the benefit of the car. So that must be unequal. However, the car allowance will have been in the six weeks SP payment for the one and not for the other. So it gets more complicated but then it goes into equality type issues and is there a challenge of potential inadvertent discrimination? But the strictly within maternity uh, pay and rights to benefits, there is no requirement to pay anything cash. That's then when people get caught up and think, oh, so if it's a thing, they have it for 52 weeks. If it's cash, they don't have it at all, apart from SMP as a right. Where does pensions fall? And pensions is a cash benefit, but it falls under protection of social security law, which then requires it for any paid weeks. So that's why pensions has a 39 week entitlement. Lots of things have a 26. So those on maternity allowance kind of have a 26 pension right, week pension right. If they don't get pay. Uh, they don't have an extension after 26 weeks. If they do get pay, they get an extra 13 weeks. But benefits, you're entitled to it for the whole time. It, you get into these sorts of mind games, don't you, John, a bit, of then thinking, have I got a conflict between maternity rights law and discrimination law and what's right? And then it gets into a subjective
1: argument. Yeah, so, so, sure. so what protections do people have? I know it's written down there, but um, particularly if you're returning... Or if you're flexible working as well, as an impact on flexible working?
0: Well, well in, in terms of return to work, well, in, in, right, if, we, if we deal with kind of what rights that people have in terms of return to work, I, mean, I suppose in a, in a general sense, the first point just to, to make clear is, is that there is a compulsory maternity leave period, uh, which is two weeks or four weeks for factory workers. Uh, it's important to note that it's a criminal offence to allow anyone to return to work within that period of, of time. And flowing on from that, of course, all employees are entitled to um, 52 weeks of of maternity leave. The choice of of when they come back is entirely up to uh, that individual. But there there are slightly different uh, rights to return to work, um, depending on whether or not it's ordinary maternity leave, which is 26 weeks or less, or the additional maternity leave period, um, because if you just take ordinary maternity leave, what you're entitled to do is return to work to exactly the same job that you left uh, on the same terms and conditions uh, of employment, uh, unless there's been a redundancy situation. And you're also entitled to any contractual improvement in terms and conditions which has arisen during that 26 week period uh, that you have been off. Once you get beyond the 26 weeks and you're in the period of additional maternity leave, you do have the entitlement to return to the same job uh, unless it's not practical for that to happen, for example, because there have been uh, an internal restructuring. uh, And so the job in its previous form doesn't exist in quite the same way. So there's slightly more enhanced rights about return to work if you've taken a longer period um, of maternity leave um, in terms of that. One thing that uh, is different about maternity leave and redundancy is an area where employers sometimes uh, fall foul of um, because generally discrimination legislation is aimed at treating people equally and it's not common in employment law that you get positive discrimination. Uh, there is sometimes in respect of disability But if you've got a uh, redundancy situation which arises during an employee's maternity leave, uh, they're entitled to be offered a suitable vacancy if one is available in preference to other employees, even if those other employees are more qualified for the suitable alternative vacancy. As I say, it's it's a fairly rare example of positive discrimination in employment law, uh, and that's an area where employers do fall out of discrimination legislation. And uh, in terms of of other areas where where I commonly see things go wrong, uh, I'll just give you a hopefully not too long a list, um, but kicking off with um, antenatal care. This is wider than just medical appointments. So, uh, for example, antenatal care, could include NCT courses or pregnancy yoga, provided it's recommended by a medical practitioner uh, or uh, a midwife or health visitor. So we sometimes see people putting in requests for that, which are refused by the employer because they think antenatal care is just limited to to going to see uh, your doctor. Um, Another area is, is breastfeeding. Um, Perhaps surprisingly, there isn't any legislation uh, in place which obliges uh, an employer to provide facilities for breastfeeding uh, or expressing. Uh, But we we sometimes see employers who uh, are slightly in the dark ages uh, and they don't allow these things. And that can give rise to uh, a sex discrimination claim um, in those circumstances. Uh, The area where we probably see that the bulk of the claims uh, arising out of maternity um, is a failure to allow a woman to return to work on a part time basis. Uh, And this gives rise to a claim for what's known as indirect discrimination in, in the same way that if you said you've got to be six foot five to have this job, that's clearly going to disadvantage women when compared to men. And it's the same with part time working because women still have. Uh, the preponderant burden of looking after children. And so if you don't allow women to come back from maternity leave on a part-time basis, that can give rise to a discrimination claim, unless you can justify why it is that you can't allow part-time working, which I think in the current climate of hybrid working um, is becoming a, a more difficult thing to establish.
1: Just just on that, John, um- yeah. Just a question that comes to mind when you talk about the changes on flex on, on working or part-time working in the yes. new world at work, where employers have, you know, shown that or employees have shown they can work perfectly fine from home. Yes. Uh, perhaps the, the employer has actually asked the employees to come back to the office, but the individual uh, concerned who's returning from maternity says, "Well, I can deliver that role, but only, you know, I would like to do it from home for, for, for various reasons." Yeah. Would would they be able to reject that claim? In the same in the same way as they are on, on the of working or is that, under, is that something you're seeing
0: I, at the moment? I, I, look, we're living in a changed world aren't we in, in the sense that that one thing a lot of employers have discovered is is that having sent their employees home they found out that they were far more productive than when they came into yeah, the office sure. anyway. so if you've got to justify these things I think it's far more difficult to, to do that now that we're in a in, in a different world in a lot of ways Uh, than where we were previously. So I think the risks of saying no uh, are now significantly greater than they they used to be, Nick, uh, I think, uh, on that. Um, I'm slightly conscious of of time and not filibustering the the whole of the the PQT session. So I'll just pick out out a a, a couple. Um, You'll be surprised that this happens, but it it still does. Um, We've had a, a number of claims, even over the last two or three years, where employers have, Ask people at interview uh, about either whether they are pregnant uh, or considering having a family. Uh, So that still goes on, potentially discriminatory. Uh, Just uh, one point which which comes up, which people may not think about uh, so much, which has given rise to claims, uh, and I've had two or three in the last couple of years, is not keeping inappropriate contact with people on maternity leave. So not telling them about suitable job vacancies or promotions, which have arisen during their period of maternity leave. There's a slight element of sort of out of sight, out of mind. And if you don't do that, they won't have had the opportunity that other people would have had. So a lot of it is about keeping in contact, but making sure that's reasonable contact uh, and not excessive contact. Because if you flip it the other way. We've had complaints of people saying, you're keeping on badgering me where I want maternity leave. Uh, please don't. So I think it's good practice to establish at the outset quite how much contact someone would want on maternity leave and the method with which you're going to con- uh, sort of contact them uh, with. So I-, I-, I could go on uh, no, that's and, probably, fine. and what, what, on and on, what, but uh, that's probably, yeah, probably enough given the time. Just to clarify
1: here, John, so um, just a point that I wasn't familiar with, and I'll make sure that I've got on my understanding right here, just as a, as a listener, as well as the host, is um, you mentioned that the antenatal care piece, so as long as it's a, a class has been recommended by a, yes. a relevant healthcare professional, an improved healthcare professional, uh, that yes. doesn't have to be, you know, that can be any class, essentially, as long as it's got that uh, official recommendation and it's related yes. to, to antenatal yes. care. Yes, yeah,
0: yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's not, a, not a closed group of things so you've got to be flexible about it provided it's had that recommendation um, right. well, so they will to be antenatal yeah. care that's sufficient so
1: we know this is the uh the audience's uh pqt so we've had a couple of questions coming in so we're going to address these next uh, but i'm going to read this one out for you uh the panel today uh, this is an excellent webinar and I'm really enjoying it, says one of the uh, the guests. So there you go. We're doing a good job. Uh, two questions here. The first is this. Um, I believe that if an employee has two jobs, they two jobs, they can claim S&P at both jobs. Should they meet the earnings um, slash length of service requirements? If that's correct and an employee has two contracts with the same company for two different roles, does that company need to pay S&P
0: twice? What they got t- two separate contracts that both reach the threshold. Hmm. Yeah. A- interesting point. Not one that I've considered, but it- they're both with the same company, are they? They are in this example, yeah. No. Yeah. Can you expand Does
2: on that. To,
3: for, yeah. How are you treating it for national insurance purposes? So SNP is judged on the class one a. Uh, sorry, on the class one position of earnings. And the average earnings, are you actually paying it separately as two completely separate jobs or are you combining it? Because you may find that the uh, uh, HMRC may require you to aggregate the earnings together and treat it as one job. So it's not necessarily the number of contracts you have, but the number of uh, Payment records you're operating for them. So as a general principle, SMP works on the class one position. So if you only have one class one record but two contracts, there's only one entitlement to SMP.
1: Perfect. And to bring you into the conversation, before we move on to payrolling and benefits, uh, Andy Nichols, I've got a question here for you. If someone wants to have a large part of their annual bonus, and the brackets here, they put 15k, put straight into the pension under a salary sacrifice scheme. How should this be shown through payroll?
2: Well, my understanding of that, and I'm sure colleagues will add to this, is first of all, my understanding is you can't know what the amount is before you agree to salary sacrifice. So you should be saying, I wish to salary sacrifice my bonus, or maybe a percentage of it, but you shouldn't know the amount. Once you know the amount, I, I, my recollection is that you are therefore, it's too late. Um, but that may that may have changed and i'll leave that with john and simon to correct and then so you are you're entering into a contractual agreement again regarding your bonus but that, that would be my i think does that, does that there's any other part to that question sorry nick no
1: that was it yeah i think so yeah. anything you want to add to that simon or, or, or john
2: yeah there's a question of
3: when the amount's made uh available to the individual so once the amount's made available to the individual it, you can't say You can't retrospectively salary sacrifice is the principle, isn't it? It has to be done in advance. Now, you could say if I knew I was going to get a £10,000 bonus every year, uh, but that's not guaranteed, I would know the amount. Can I sacrifice that? I think the the answer to that is potentially yes, but is the amount available? And so there's an important principle on timing uh, that comes into play and uh, yeah. making sure that retrospection doesn't. But what you need to do in payroll, actually, yeah. you don't need to do anything in payroll. You don't even have to put it through payroll. You could just send a cheque to the pension scheme. That's the basic amounts of any salary sacrifice arrangement, I would suggest, Nick, uh, Andy, isn't it, is that just yeah. sending a contribution to the pension scheme doesn't have to be reflected in payroll at all. But if you're wanting to show a positive amount and a negative amount, for a, a financial balancing element, the HMRC will say the important aspect from their their point of view is what's the contractual position.
2: Yeah. I think there's a practical thing as well. Just simply if you put it through the payroll, the employer contribution, the ten thousand pounds or whatever, then you're gonna it's gonna it's gonna filter through to the account system and everything else. And and if you in your yes. reporting to the pension provider will include the ten thousand in it. So there's a there's a practical thing to that I would say means putting it through payroll is a good is a good approach.
1: As as a follow up, uh, a different different uh, participant here has said that uh, our advisor has told us that as long as the bonus is sacrificed before it is due for payment in quotations, then it's okay.
2: Get the legal opinion and then you're covered. (laughs) I'm sure John would agree. But, but like
3: our disclaimer at the beginning, don't assume that someone sure. else's legal opinion carries over to you. You need yeah. to get your own.
1: There is an example here. I think we'll, we'll just finish this, this bit here. But last, last example is if we have a bonus payable in January payroll and we tell our employees it's going to be £1,000 each, can they sacrifice it as long as they let us know before that 1st of January? Because you're going to know the amount or, or, or not.
3: Well, I'd suggest potentially yes if the, available, the amount is not available to them. But as soon as it's uh, indicated as being available to them, no. So it's it's very tight timing situation and very careful wording of what you actually mean. But there may be an element of everybody's gets, I don't know, 250 quid for Christmas. Do you want the choice of salary sacrificing that? Well, yes, you can. But you can't once the bonus is allocated to that amount. Because you could say, well, I know what I'm going to earn all year. So, is that amount made available to me? Well, it's not really until the pay period's reached. And but as a matter of when. Uh, yeah, the when redundancy. do you make that choice? But it has to be made in advance of the so payment an being wanted, due.
1: If the employee wanted some of their redundancy pay paid into salary sacrifice pension, they wouldn't be able to if they knew how much it was going to be. Or they would, providing it was made before the pay period.
3: Uh, they would if it's part of the agreement mm. of the settlement. But once the agreement has been made, they're too late.
1: Yeah, I see. That's interesting. Who said payroll was was, was easy, right? It's complicated. and
2: pensions. That's why we're here. Let's move oh, this sorry, forward. Let's move this forward. Go on, Andy. Go on, Andy. Skipping, You also got lifetime allowance considerations. How much you putting in might breach that? The annual allowance as well, 40k. There's lots of other factors that the individual should be taking their own advice, maybe co- even contact pension-wise, that sort of thing, get a bit of thoughts you know, before. You don't yeah, want to... End it. it's, I, it's, think, it's, I think maybe... Generally I think can be, you can only you
3: can only contribute £40,000, employee-employer a year, tax-free, and if you've uh, taken any of it flexibly, uh,
2: that drops to 4000 Indeed, yeah. You can carry some forward in the 40K, but it's it's, it's yeah, you it just this much... It's more complicated. But the individual needs to be on the ball with this as well. <laughs> Super. I've had a
1: little comment here from Bab. Said this is why we love payroll. There you go. They appreciate <laughs> the complexity, which is great. Let's move into <laughs> payrolling benefits. The good thing is we've covered a lot of this already in the questions as we go through. But um, there has been an employment bulletin. Um, how is the HMRC view changing, Simon? If you could uh, pick this up for us.
3: Yeah, sure. It's interesting, and it's uh, it's uh, interesting to see where they're coming from as well. But you found that most benefiting arrangements were through flexbend schemes, informal arrangements, lists being sent to local offices. Well, the lists being sent to local offices all ended a oh, long time ago. But uh, when uh, Opera Law came in and the option to no longer do P11Ds for those that registered, the position changed. So all the list arrangements ended. And uh, but people could carry on informal payrolling, but have to supply P11D. But in every employer's bulletin, in fact, there's the February bulletin 2022 that came out earlier this week, look at it on payrolling and see what it says, how factually accurate it is. I say I won't comment, but I am commenting. But uh, you have to make your own judgment on how factually accurate it is. But increasingly, HMRC seem to be calling the P11D a legacy system. I think those words are used in the Employer Bulletin. Yeah. And okay, also yeah. suggesting that people should uh, stop informally payrolling. In fact, they're saying you can't informally payroll anymore. If you want to payroll, register for formal payrolling. So it's an interesting position.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, we've got a little bit of a, a poll here. I've got to ask the question a minute about payrolling, whether it's predictive or, or, or uh, not retrospective. But um, if we can just get the audience involved, it's been fantastic, the audience so far. Questions coming in thick and fast. Another one to ask yet again in just a moment. Before we do, let's get your fingers at the ready, hands on buzzers. Uh, are you planning on payrolling benefits? Please select one of the options yes for 2022, yes for 2023, no or not sure. Uh, and while you are answering those questions, I'm going to throw another question into the mix here while we're getting those poll results uh, for you, Simon. Uh, Can we have a bit of information about the Veterans National Insurance and the claim of the relief?
3: You can have a little bit of information on that, yes. So for those that have got veterans employed started in the 21-22 tax year, there is a manual process of claiming from HMRC. The real detail of how to do that is still a little bit unknown. But from April the 6th, 2022, you can operate uh, letter NIC category V, and the employer will not have any secondary NI liability up to the upper earnings limit. Well, the uh, veterans upper secondary threshold, which just happens to match the upper earnings limit at the moment. Super
1: fantastic, thanks for asking that question. So, um, and while we're waiting for those poll results to come in, Hannah, if you can give us those when they're ready, uh, we've got payrolling is uh, predictive, not retrospective. Can you comment on, on on that?
3: Often, when people want to go a uh, payrolling route, they think, well, all we've got to do is move what we have to from P11D to payrolling, however, payrolling, uh, P11D rather is uh, retrospective you're looking back at what actually happens when you payroll you're quite often having to predict what will happen in the future but you don't know if your employees going to go off ill next week or they crash the car or change it but you've got to do it on a prediction basis of what will happen in the tax year the other aspect about it is it's spread so it tends to spread through the life of the benefit Whereas under P11D, it was applied to the tax year it it occurred. So they're different, very similar, but different activity. And quite often we find that people, when they're going to payroll, are unprepared for that. Plus there's the angle of um, lots of people think that they can register for payrolling by the 5th for the P11D for this year. But this year's P11D relates to last year. So if you're registering for April the 5th, you're actually registering for the P11D you would have done in 2023. So it does require some time thinking of what you're going to do to implement payrolling. And quite often we've had people come quite disappointed because they'll say, you know, this payrolling thing, we want to implement it this month, and it's the 15th of April. And you say, we can get that income before payday because you don't get paid until the 30th of April. That's fine, isn't it? Just put the allowances on and we're good to go. And there's an argument of, have you registered? What do you mean? It's sort of, have you actually formally registered with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs by the required deadline that you're going to payroll this year? Says, so oh, what's that about? And it's sort of, well, then you can't payroll this year. But if you register now, you can start payrolling the year after from April. And so it's just getting the timing in our heads of when we need to take the activity.
1: Well, interestingly, if you look at those poll results there, Simon, 34% aren't planning to payroll benefits at all. And yet 47% it's pretty pretty split there are actually planning it for, for the near future in 2022
3: is for quite high, isn't it? And certainly we've seen repeated encouragement from the employer bulletin to increase the number of people that are payrolling. And the reality is a lot of us have been payrolling, whether we've been doing it formally or informally, for some years.
1: And once you've registered, do you have to register again every year or do you just register the once?
3: Just the once. The The only time you have to um, revisit the registration is if you want to uh, knock a benefit off or add another one.
1: Your commentary earlier about the uh, the wording of legacy being put in there by the HMRC. Are we thinking then the appeal 11 d in future uh, will will disappear and it'll have to be payroll? Is that is that what we're thinking?
3: I, I think there's some people at HMRC would like that to be the case, but that no. wasn't the proposal of the Office for Tax Simplification. Uh, their proposal was to allow uh, the option for people to choose, and uh, but we'll see. But you may find maybe in five years time, they'll push it more down an angle of uh, we're not going to give you a choice. However, some benefits are very difficult to do on a payrolling basis on a predictive because you don't know what the benefit is until after it's happened. Typically, that uh, relates to uh, beneficial loans because the, the rates tend to be set retrospectively.
1: Slightly different question here before we move into our eco initiatives uh, section, Uh, but it does relate to a benefit given to an employee. It says if we provided work equipment to support home working and the employee leaves, can they keep the equipment? And if they do, would there be benefit in kind tax implications for doing so?
3: Often no, but maybe. So that's a bit of a strange response, isn't it? Because the, there's an element of um, when who's bought the equipment and what's the arrangement for reimbursement is one angle. And I think we could do a whole session on this type of stuff. And and so I'm, I'm not going to attempt to give you a black and white answer, if that's a fair thing to say. But I think there's an element of it. It's, it's good to explore maybe in a blog or an article or something like that, Nick. But there are yeah. potentials that. Actually, there is no tax liability, depending on who's bought the equipment in the first place and whether the reimbursement was under the concessions made during the period of COVID or whether the employer purchased it and provided it. And also, there's a consideration of if there was a liability, how much is it worth? Because assets actually decrease in value fairly rapidly. So you may find, uh, as some people quite often do with bike schemes, but uh, actually, after two years, the bike's worth twenty quid. So you get twenty quid, and you're all quids in, aren't you?
1: Well, let's move the conversation forward. I'm conscious of time, and I have a feeling this might be a, a one to keep the uh, the brain working hard for you, here, Simon, Andy, and John. Let's we're going to talk about eco initiatives. I mean, particularly the reason we brought this to the fore is there've been an awful lot of questions in different social groups and social media uh, about uh, if, you know, electric cars and things like that in in, in just to begin with just before we start the uh, talking about the nitty-gritty and the payroll uh, complexities of this i'm just interested to know how many people in the audience 84 of us coming in attendance have actually gone electric so just be interested to know how many people have started to make this adoption We realize on the panel both myself and simon um, have actually made that transition ourselves but how many of the rest of you have actually gone to an electric car or perhaps are planning to in the near future. While we're waiting for those poll results to come in, uh, more for intrigue than anything else, Uh, let's uh, get stuck into this then. Um, Tell us a little bit, Simon, if you can, about uh, the eco-initiatives in relation to company vehicles and electric cars.
3: Well, sure. And and the reason they're increasing in popularity, uh, whether that's political or taxation-wise, are various. But obviously, we all want to save the planet um, in certain ways, so it seems like a good idea, doesn't it? But uh, the significant area under eco vehicles is the opera law that came back in 2017, where, in effect, salary sacrifice for company cars um, disappeared, except if there was under 75 grams uh, limit on on the emissions. And then opera law didn't apply to that. So those could consider, continue as a salary sacrifice arrangement. Plus there was the element of... Uh, Electric cars quite often were zero tax um, or very low tax. So, if you salary sacrificed, your saving in your tax by reduction in earnings was uh, greater than the cost of the benefit on the vehicle being provided. So, it was a win win situation for the plan and for the individual and the employer, maybe. So, uh, they've started to increase in popularity. However, Uh, We mustn't lose sight because actually electric cars are starting to um, have a tax liability. So although many cars had a zero tax liability before April 2021, a 1% charge on the list price benefit of the car came in from April 2021, and that doubles in April 2022 to 2%. And you'll have to see where that travel is going. But it is novel for us, uh, Nick. I I do find it incredible. I can go down and uh, we were talking about football uh, earlier in the match, probably because of uh, the type of panel we are. I can go down and watch the posh, which uh, John alluded to, of travelling to one time, uh, and park my car right by the ground and plug it in for three hours for free. How long is that going to last? Because at the moment... um, You I can do it.
1: Am I correct in thinking at the minute uh, for employees that have an electric car, it doesn't affect their ability to claim HMRC mileage allowances back as standard? Or does that change if you've got an electric vehicle?
3: Uh, It depends who owns the car. So if it's your own car and my car is my own car, uh, potentially you're still entitled to the mileage rates for using a private car for business
1: mileage. And if if you're not, if it's a company-owned car?
3: uh then you have to follow the uh, approved uh, rates for company cars which will be significantly lower sure
1: i know we've covered a lot of uh the, the individual bullet points we've listed here um during the course of the uh, the show itself and please if you have any questions related to any of these areas uh please do put them in there in the questions box we've got through most of them now today which is fantastic and your interaction has been there uh, been wonderful have the uh, poll results come back uh hannah have we so still no at 76%. Wow. Yes, only 2%, but 23% looking to change. Okay, interesting. True. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what other elements here have we not covered yet, Simon, that might be relevant? Are there implications on um, statutory leave, on, on salary sacrifice, or tax implications, or even carbon offsetting schemes, which I know that are available now via flexible benefits?
3: Yeah, it's interesting to know what these all are and how they operate. And sometimes you have to look at some of the detail. But uh, some are offering an option of carbon offsetting. I've I've seen that occasionally. You can make uh, uh, various rounding sums or whatever to offset and and grow trees or or other initiatives, ports, uh, wind farm production, or et cetera, which are great. But I think they're just cash arrangements, really. So you're not really receiving a benefit, you're helping the planet out. So in effect, if you do that, it operates a little bit like a, a, almost say, a charitable deduction in the fact that you're getting tax and NI relief for uh, the provision of taking a pay cut. Um, but you have to be a little bit careful with where that falls under opera law and how the arrangements are set. Uh, so yeah, tax implications, think about it. There's an element of a lot of confusion. Uh, we have been running a quiz on so sacrifice uh, national minimum wage etc and it's surprising how confusing the subject is and um, people really find it a struggle to get their head round sometimes you just have to be a little bit mad like me maybe uh, to get round it but uh, in relation to this electric car it's not a private vehicle it's a company car and you can say but it's not come from the company it's come from this electric vehicle hiring company well as far as uh her majesty's revenue customs concerns the leasing arrangement is between the employer and the leasing company the individual is a company car driver so just be wary of that of who owns that same with the cycle schemes although i have seen some schemes recently that seem to give instant ownership or even uh trade out vouchers um not necessarily same for cycles but for other things going to be very careful they may not quite have understood the, the legal implication of a uh, provision of non-cash or cash vouchers. Also, some of those vouchers uh, are not exchangeable for the good that you said you were buying. You could exchange them for anything, in which case it probably fails. So there's some element to be very careful around these and make sure that uh, the simplicity of them is understood so that we implement them correctly and don't fall foul. Because if we do fall foul, it's usually three or four years down the line that we're caught, and then it's very difficult to undo. And uh, even uh, I'll try and involve Andy here a little bit. When you find out that something should have been treated differently, it might have pension implications as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 we will be saying to employers, if this person. For instance, you've got a salary sacrifice scheme that isn't compliant and therefore they didn't salary sacrifice, their pay will go up and now they should perhaps have been automatically enrolled because they met the trigger to be automatically enrolled but the salary sacrifice amount reduced to pay below the limit so they weren't and now you're going to have to put them back in the scheme perhaps two, three years ago. Huh? So I don't think tri- we want to scare anybody but
3: I think there's an argument if you need to go with your eyes open yeah, and understand what it really is. Uh, Because sometimes there's a bit of a temptation to rush through or jump on something, which is a really good idea. But it's only a really good idea if it is. So don't just jump at it, because sometimes it might be a bad idea.
1: That said, as uh, as Ian Davis has very well pointed out here, the benefit in kind for fully electric is fixed at the minute um, at just 2% for the next three years, which is really good news. This is obviously, of course, likely to increase slightly after that, but the government does need to keep them fairly low to encourage more people to adopt and take them on. But it's a great benefit for employee, employers to launch. And uh, I think I was saying to uh, to Simon, John and Andy in the preparation for this that uh, there was a really good debate on radio, uh, talk radio yesterday which was talking about how you know the, the taxes are going to have to go up for those that run electric cars because eventually when everyone's got them, someone's going to have to pay for the infrastructure on the roads. But between now and then, because apparently they are heavier, and apparently they cause more... In terms of uh, road disruption, if you like, because of breaking down the roads, yeah, that's what we're looking for wear and tear on the roads, the ordinary cars. But at the moment, of course, we haven't got, you know, it's, it's it's a really good benefit to have, and at just 2%. The next three years, not a bad time to adopt. So uh, not surprised to see that poll number as high as it was at 20. It was 22 percent looking to to make that change over the next few years. a really conscious of time. We've got three minutes now to jump into pensions or to enrollment. I mean, how much time could you possibly need to, to tackle such a complicated subject? Luckily, we've got an absolute pro here who can keep it all Nice and tight for everybody. So let's jump into that subject quickly. And I'm going to run over to you, Andy, to talk us a little bit through the freezing of thresholds, the impact on net pay arrangements, and 2025 proposals, if we can.
2: Um, yeah, I'll do that very quickly then. So, freezing thresholds, so the 21-22 automatic enrollment thresholds are lower, the trigger point and the upper thresholds are just remaining the same. So, 22-23 has the same thresholds as 21-22, no change at all. It's important to note. Net pay arrangement relief at source. You hopefully have seen the government have mentioned that um, the, the anomaly between those who are not non-taxpayers, who are in relief at source schemes, they get their tax relief, even though even though they're not taxpayers. But the net pay arrangement people, they actually end up paying the full contribution without any tax relief. So the government are going to fix that anomaly so from 24 25 tax year those people in net pay arrangements who don't pay tax will be given a payment to them to offset the fact that they didn't get that tax relief will get that tax relief in words and that'll be paid to them in 25 26 and ongoing so that's really good the um in terms of the changes to automatic enrollment i had reduction from 22 to 18 As a trigger age for looking to see if someone needs to be automatically enrolled, the reduction from the lower threshold from what it is at the moment down to nil, perhaps even a change to trigger, that's been proposed by the Department for Work and Pensions for quite a few years now. In terms of the first two points, and it's been proposed that mid 2020s, 24, 25, 25, 26, those things will come in. But MP Richard Holden has put in a private members' bill, which has its second reading um, a week today, Friday 25th, which is he needs proposing the same things. So, as in lower threshold nil, age down to 18 for triggering. And I think, as I'm sure you said, about not having a trigger at all. So, a lot of people get in, enrolled. The if, whether or not that will pass, I don't know. If it does, the timing of that, I don't know. So watch the space, see what happens with the second reading for on Friday. But there will be at some point changes to automatic enrollment.
1: Amazing. That's Andy did a great job there. Fantastic. Look at that. Less than three minutes. We've covered also enrollment pensions. Thank you to the expert panel today. And we look forward to welcoming you all to the next panel question time in March.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.